Are you ready to learn more about promoting play, defending childhood, empowering caregivers? Save 10% on professional development at explorationsearlylearning.com and support the show with the coupon code OOL. Click the link in the show notes to browse upcoming trainings. Hello, welcome back to Out of Line. I'm Annie Friday, sitting here with Candace Ogilvie, and today we have a guest named Amanda Diekman. Hi, Amanda. Hi. Thank you for joining us today. Um, Amanda recently wrote a book that just came out. Um, it came out this summer, right, Amanda? Yeah. And, uh, and it's on low demand parenting which might be a term new to some people in our audience. Um, Amanda, will you give us just a brief introduction of yourself? And um, the title is officially Low Demand Parenting, Dropping Demands, Restoring Calm, and Finding Connection with Your Uniquely Wired Child. Yes. Hi, I'm Amanda. I live in Durham, North Carolina with my three neurodivergent children and an intentional community supporting people with disabilities. We began... um, our low demand journey um, almost three years ago when my middle child went into unexpectedly went into autistic burnout. We didn't know that they were autistic yet at that point, but the behaviors that we were seeing, which looked like 12 hours of screen time a day, unable to leave their room, unable to speak, often unable to walk, eating only two or three foods and just epic, very long, aggressive meltdowns. We didn't have any category for what we were seeing, what it meant and how it could be anything other than a failure. And the low demand parenting is really the journey that we went on together as a family of relearning what it meant to be in connection with each other, figuring out how to love and accept the children that I have and not the ones that I fantasized about having and also falling in love with my own life and discovering what it looks like to be me um, after really about four decades of trying very hard to be somebody else. Um, I discovered that I am autistic, that all of my children are neurodivergent, and that what thriving looks like for us is very, very different than the picture that I had in my head of what it looks like for a family to be thriving. Um, and, And truly, I wrote this book as a love letter to families everywhere who are feeling lost and like there's no path forward for them, that all the tools they've been handed don't work. And so they must be broken or messing it up. And um, they're not, there's just a different way out there. Hmm. Beautiful. And you just like hit all the points that I wanted. I like made some notes of things I wanted to talk about. So can we first talk about, um, you said you didn't know um, that your son had autism, had um, and I'm curious about that because in your intro to your book, you talk about filling out a, a survey, uh, a screening survey at his two-year-old checkup, it sounded like, um, and handing it to the nurse, knowing like, you're not asking the right questions, I think is what you said. So yes. talk to me about that a little bit, because I feel like, um, and and we are also adults who have discovered our own neurodivergencies close to the age of 40 or at age 40. Um, so we understand like w- what this means and um but we want to help maybe listeners who don't understand talk about how somebody could live almost four decades of their life not knowing. Um, and let's start with the two-year-old screening. So how did your own pediatrician office not pick up on the fact that your son maybe was autistic? Yeah. Um, 
the, the screening, I remember this day, um, the questions, there were about 10 and I was checking them off and, and they don't say, Hey, this is a questionnaire to find out if your kid is autistic or not. You just kind of know, um, that this is something where like, you're supposed to say yes. And if you say no, they're going to be like, like, um, or maybe it's the reverse. Um, like, do they use pronouns correctly? Do they, um, look at you when that you call their name, um, various things like that, where I was like, okay, well, kind of yes, but also, and I had all of these kind of like caveats that I wanted to offer them. And, um, and part of it is I, I think I didn't trust the, the portrait of autism that I'd been handed by, you know, I was vaguely aware um, of specifically what it was to be autistic, but I didn't have a real clear sense. And the particular markers on those 10 questions that they were asking me were no's, but my intuition was already telling me I have a, I think I put this this way in the book. I have a zebra in a world of horses. Like I knew something was different. And I think that that um, is what the questionnaire should say at the top. Like, do you have a suspicion that something is different? Like one bet, one box. Mm -hmm. And if you check that, then like, well, let's talk about that. Like, let's refer you to somebody who could chat with you about that. Um, because why not? Yeah. And if we don't have a stigma against it, like let's set up a whole system where we can help parents figure out at two, um, that they might be, they might be, they might've been handed a different child mm -hmm. than the, um, the children's book says that you should have the, the parenting book. And, um, also a lot of the DSM criteria, and this is even true. Uh, I would say this today that the DSM criteria for autism, um, specifically, but also for ADHD are in large part stress behaviors that researchers have observed from highly stressed populations over the past four decades or so. And um, we have to keep in mind that a lot of the people that the studies were done on um, were also traumatized. And so these are trauma stress behaviors from neurodivergent people. And now we're using those as the primary criteria for, for identifying them, even in two-year-olds. Mm -hmm. Like my two-year-old was very well-loved and supported at that point. And even though I was already seeing behaviors that were troubling to me and, and mm -hmm. concerning for the family, most of what we were seeing was typical, thriving, healthy, and happy neurodivergence. Mm -hmm. And let's, let's talk about what that looks like too. Um, that's of course, you know, a sea change in the world of psychiatry to, um, to even think about radically accepting and accommodating rather than diagnosing and marginalizing, like that would be lovely. Mm -hmm. Um, but also for many of our families, and it sounds like the families of your listeners, like we may already be attuning and accommodating and supporting our children in really important ways that then disqualify them for a diagnosis. Come on, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. um, the core brain difference is there. And when they're really well loved and accepted, then they thrive. And that thriving looks different. It's neurodivergent thriving. It's not the same as neurotypical thriving, but it's thriving nonetheless. And um, it wasn't really until my six-year-old hit this radical burnout that we were able to identify their autism is that 
because, and also for me, when I hit my own burnout at 40 was when I was able to identify my own autism. That's no coincidence. That's because the criteria have always been built on stress. And so when people are under severe stress is when they get diagnosed. Yeah. So we need a list of those thrive, what it looks like for people when they're thriving too. How does it, how does that neurodivergency show up without the trauma, without the burnout, without the stress, as you mentioned. Um, And you mentioned that you felt an intuitive sense that your child was different. Um, You talk about that too, just kind of casually asking people like, how does getting dressed look like in your household? Because like you said, like you get these parenting books, maybe, I mean, there are people out there Sometimes I have to remember there are people out there who don't read parenting books, like, whoa, that's a thing that exists, but you just start like getting these little hints, right? But you're only raising your kids. So your kids are your only real reference point. I mean, maybe if you've been a teacher or a nanny or involved with other people's kids' lives, you have some um, frame of reference, but you just have to kind of go from what your life is, right? So you don't always know that you have a zebra in a world full of horses until you start getting some signals externally, um, typically that show like you have somebody who's different than what is typical in the world. Yeah. And just to, to deepen that further, um, the studies show that neurodivergence is upwards of 80% hereditary. And so there's also likely been generations and generations and generations of neurodivergence in your family. And so perhaps parents don't recognize it in their children because they think like something's a little different here. And then they check with their parent and they're like, oh, no, you did that. Everybody does that. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> also, neurodivergent people tend to feel more comfortable with other neurodivergent people. So they tend to partner with them or friend up with them. Like the two of you, like it's no coincidence that you both discovered your neurodivergence in your forties. There was a reason that you connected and that you felt trust and that you were able to partner in the way that you were. Um, so there's also this kind of, um, like a bubble effect that, um, oftentimes people will look around at their, two things happen. One is maybe you look around at other people and you're like, whoa, nobody else is going through what I am. It must be my fault. I'm just bad at this. Mm -hmm. So that's one common experience. Or maybe you're in a, you naturally gravitated to other people who are neurodivergent and have similar kids. And so they're kind of like, yeah, like, yeah, my kid lines up all his blocks, but never wants to play with them. Like that's super normal. Or like, yeah, my daughter is really specific about like, what her clothing fits like. And you're like, well, I'm really specific about how my clothing fits. So that's just what it is to be <laughs> in a body. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and it's, it's, so then it can be really what I want to say is that it's the diagnosis is neither here nor there. Like if you're um, you don't have to get professionally diagnosed. And I don't think that two-year-olds need to have that. Um, but growing up, in a neurotypical world with ableism everywhere in everything, knowing that we are good and right just the way we are and that it is the world that is mistakenly created an entire system that does not ensure our thriving, that like getting that balance right is what matters most. So oftentimes a diagnosis is what enables families to do that, to say, you are just right. You're, you are an autistic child who is just right. And 
Like I can dream of a world where we don't need a label in order to do that, but that is not the world we live in right now. And so that is a, an important reason to listen to your intuition and pursue a diagnosis. Also, the data is, is coming out and quite strong for ADHD that stimulant use in children is a significant protector against adult mental health um, struggles. So that's another piece of the puzzle, but an important reason to get children diagnosed with ADHD young is that um, medication can be life-saving for them. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Um, There's so much there. And I think, um, you know, the idea of to diagnose or not comes up a lot um, in the world of self-directed education and unschooling and people who maybe already are living outside of a a more conventional system. And I, I definitely get why you wouldn't necessarily need the label in a, in a, like you're saying kind of in an ideal world where we could just look at people and say like, how, how do you need support today? Right. Like just really respond to people's needs day by day, but we don't live in that world. Um, I'm also seeing it now um, with people who are older, who maybe didn't get a diagnosis, who are like in retirement age and maybe could have qualified for certain types of housing and things like that. Um, And just like, not that a diagnosis is essential, but what it can and can't offer you and, and, every stage of life is something to consider when, when deciding whether or not to get a diagnosis for yourself or a family member. Um, And I know we have listeners from around the world and there are countries where it can be a significant financial um, difference, whether you have an official diagnosis or not in terms of government support for the family and the child. So I think that that's also important to hold in mind. In the United States, we have so little support for disabled families that it almost doesn't make any difference or not. If you're not in school, that would be the only place where that diagnosis would open doors. Mm. Um, this is this is something we need to be a little bit more honest about because as a country, that means that we are only supporting disabled families through the school system. Like that is the only way, and even that is deeply broken. So mm-hmm. um, there are many other countries where the context is different. Yeah. Our um, system here is called Child Find to help find and, and diagnose and support families who, with children with all kinds of different diagnoses. And a friend of mine in special education always says it should really be called child not find. Cause it's almost like they're trying not to find the kids. Cause you have to come to them and it's all through the school system. And it's yeah. Anyways, it's, it is wild to think about that. Um, it also leads to like further disconnection. Like you weren't seeing your family's experience reflected back to you in the things that you were reading and the experts you were talking to. You mentioned, um, going to a, a, you know, therapists or various experts who kind of hunker down on your boundaries, right? Like mm-hmm. you need to regulate your kid by holding strong boundaries, be in charge. Like those are the the terms that we hear. That's the advice that's pushed. Um, and boundaries is hot right now, right? We're all like running around like, Oh, I just discovered boundaries and boundaries are great for many things. But when you're not seeing your experience reflected back and you're told that you're not holding strong enough boundaries. Again, it comes back to that sense of failure. What am I doing wrong? Um, How did that play out for you? Yeah. Well, on a definitions level, I think that boundaries are often coterminous with adult power. Essentially what we're saying is you aren't using your adult power over them effectively. And I've always been really averse to using my adult power over my children. Um, that's part of my own neurology. And um, one of the gifts of being my particular kind of autistic is I really don't like being in imbalanced power relationships. They feel deeply unsafe to me, even with my own children. 
So, um, so I've never been, um, one for like strong boundaries, i.e. I will enforce my will over you. And, and so I have done it, but I have really not liked it. Mm. And, um, it, it always felt like a violation to me, um, of the relationship. And now I know that it is, um, I think that boundaries can be redefined in some healthy ways that, um, take the element of power out of it. But I think that the even in rethinking what a boundary is, I personally choose not to think in terms of boundaries because um, of the trauma that I have associated with that word and the way that it was used against me when I was a kid and then against me as an adult. Um, I, I don't, I don't use it for myself, but I know plenty of people who do. And um, that the way I like to define a boundary is that it is an innate nervous system capacity. It is essentially naming the window of tolerance of what a person can tolerate, what is doable and what is not. Or as I put it in my book, like where is the line between hard and too hard? And that that is the boundary. It's not something that you can impose on someone else. It isn't something that you can generate. It is simply there. And the question is whether or not we have the kind of compassion and flexibility and curiosity to discover it in other people and in ourselves and build a life that supports that so that we can stay within our our zone of tolerance, so that we can stay safe the majority of the time. Um, so that said, our, my experience was that I was naming behaviors that I was seeing and experts were saying, well, you, you know, you just need to tell them not to do that. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> oh, is that what I'm missing? Okay, <laughs> got it. Check done. Everything's better now. <laughs> what, they and what they really meant was you need to punish them when they don't. And um, because for our neurodivergent kids, or really for all children um, that don't fit the standard narrative what people are saying is give them the standard narrative. And then when they don't fit it, then you cur you kind of carve off the parts of them until they can fit the narrative. That is the story of most of us, um, neurodivergent adults. And either we let them carve it all off until we didn't recognize ourselves anymore, or we couldn't. And then we were punished and punished and punished until we were broken or we didn't want to live anymore. And that is the reality. Like we have to face the mortality rates among neurodivergent people, um, this, the life expectancy, the co-occurring mental health conditions, um, the neurodivergence to prison pipeline. Like these are real realities. And that is the fruit of this parenting style. So if we want it to be different, then we need to start by changing our expectations, the things that we say, this is how you are supposed to be. We, we say, Ooh, what if the way you are is just right? And mm -hmm. I'm just going to figure out how are you? Because it's my job to get now curious, like, where are you? Who are you? What's doable for you? Then, and then that is the new list of expectations. Oh, that's what's doable for you. Okay. So then this, this is now what I expect. And then work with that child. And, and how do you want to be? Like, what do you dream of? What do you want to be possible? And how can I use the tools that I've accumulated in my life and the relationship that we have with one another to support you in pursuing your own dreams? And there's no carving. There's no false mirror being held up. There's just compassionate support. That's what 
a boundary can look like for a child. Mm. Candace, you and I have talked a lot about boundaries and how um, often like you hear in a negative context, like, oh, they're pushing our boundaries. And it often is that like imbalance of power, right? Where we're, it's adults talking about kids. And we've kind of laughed over the years, Candace, because like, how do you find a boundary without pushing up against it? Right. And like, how do you know when you're about to cross someone's boundary? There's no like, beep, beep, like approaching boundary. Like there's no like audio um, cue or anything. Uh, You just have to kind of find it by accidentally stepping on it sometimes. And then maybe you'll remember for next time that that person's tolerance is that or or this or whatever, but maybe you won't. Um, Candice, you were talking too about like your own low demand. And we've also talked about watching kids struggle and not trying to fix it. Um, Recently, that's been a topic of conversation, which feels really funny to most people like, oh, your kid is struggling. Have you noticed? Um, You're like, no, shoot, didn't notice. Um, Anything to add on that? Yeah. Um, You know, I'm just thinking about the idea of boundaries and this, the idea of low demand parenting, because I see it in the context of schools and how what we're doing in the beginning with our kids when they're young is to prepare them for schools and to prepare them, like Amanda, you were saying, like for the idea of adults having power over them. And so once we remove that, and now we have this new way of living in the world, um, all of those extra boundaries and requirements those are gone because we don't have to fear our kids being othered in school or punished in school. And it's just, so now, I mean, hearing from you, Amanda, I'm just kind of like processing all of these amazing ideas and amazing, just the way you're talking about it is a whole new way to look at things. Well, and we've seen it, right. Not just us watching the, the um, watching it, but like, young people in our space themselves when they see that we're not gonna impose some punishment or some discipline because we're just because just because we're the adult in the room and just because you don't kick a trash can when you're mad like you know like the first time somebody was like upset and did something like that that um we didn't really know how we were going to react because we didn't plan for that right but we also just kind of knew like there was no principal's office to send them to. There was no detention. We weren't calling parents to pick them up. They were a person in a heated moment who responded and reacted and we were there for them. And they were like, aren't you going to like call my mom? We were like, no, like, aren't you going to like send me home? Like, aren't you going to be mad at me? And we're like, looks to me like you just need some time to cool down. And they're like, they're like, whoa, <laughs> like, and that's it. And then it ends there. That the struggle doesn't continue because we're not just creating a demand to create a demand. Um, so this has been a wonderful conversation. We could keep talking forever. And I don't think we got to the point of defining even what low demand, I mean, a little bit, but just low demand. I think people, some people may hear that and think, oh, hands off parenting, like another way to be permissive parent. Um, tell us what's different or maybe not different um, about the idea of low demand parenting. Yeah. Low demand is about dropping the demands 
and aligning our expectations so that we can show up in radical acceptance for the child in front of us. Radical acceptance is the end goal. That is what we are getting to. And so the demands that we drop and the expectations that we align are all around the particular child in front of us. So there's no litmus test for being a low demand parent. It's not like, well, if you send your kids to school, then you can't be low demand. Or if you, um, you know, have a chore chart, you can't be low demand. Like you can totally do those things that it's, it's how you do them and whether or not it aligns with the capacity of the child in front of you. Mm. Um, the, the key distinction that I make, um, so first, I don't like to demonize permissive parenting. I think that it has been misconstrued. Um, I think that there's a good chance that the data that came out of all of those studies that put permissive parents at the low end or at like the worst and um, outcomes, that what they were always seeing were neurodivergent people who were raising neurodivergent kids and for whom the kind of set of expectations that they were given, didn't matter how you punished or how you, how gently you incentivized, they were never going to be doable. And so then if you were always just measuring, like, well, did they do this? Did they do the, the list? Like, no, they didn't. And that didn't work for the parents and didn't work for the kids. And all we have is just like study after study showing that neurotypical expectations do not match neurodivergent kids. Like, whoa, surprise, surprise. Uh, so I think there's a good chance that there was, as is there is today, a quite of a wide variety of ways and reasons that people end up dropping demands. Um, what I see as being really unhelpful and, and that is also being called low demand parenting, which I, I would like to distinguish, um, is in the moment when our kid is having a hard time, like right there. And then we're like, okay, fine. You know, we're saying, come on, get your shoes on, get your shoes on. It's time to go put your shoes on fine. I'll do it for you. That, um, keeps us stuck and often develops a kind of resentment from the parent to the child and a negative self-image for the child of like, I'm never good enough for my parent. And then, and then they're mad at me. I'm like, I don't know how to get out of that. Um, I must be bad, uh, because I can't do the thing and I make, and I make life harder for them. Um, that kind of demand dropping, while it's better than, than saying, if you can't put your shoes on, I'm gonna, and then loading on a bunch of punishments. Um, it's not a lot better because what matters most to the kid is whether or not you see them as innately good and right. And whether or not they are safe with you always. Um, so the key to going from that kind of parenting into true low demand parenting is saying, oh, it's always hard for you to put your shoes on. I'm going to figure out what specifically is too hard. Is it getting up and walking over to the shoe bin? Is it the feeling of the socks on your feet? Is it because we all do it at the same time and it's noisy and overwhelming? Is it because you can't sequence the steps to go from where you are to shoes on and out the door? Is it because you don't actually like wearing shoes at all and we need to find a better way to protect your feet? There's so many possible demands that may be too hard for this particular child. And it's that process of attuning of deep listening, and then letting go of what's specifically too hard for your child. That is actually the transformative engine. It's not that you get them to wear their shoes in the end, like they may, or they may not. And the way you do it, eh, it doesn't, it's that process of being 
a deep, deep listener to your child and letting go of the idea that the end goal is behavior. Like the end goal is that you Mm -hmm. do the thing. No, the end goal is that you understand them better, that you create a life that actually works for them, that they feel strong and empowered and Uh, and capable in their daily life. And so if that means that you every day bring the shoes out to the car and put them on for them when they're in their seat, but that is what enables them to actually go to the place and do the thing, then great. Like that's an awesome accommodation. And, and that's the way that permissive, I think is a destructive idea for us as parents is that so many parents then feel ashamed of that. Right. That's their great failing that their kid can't put their shoes on for themselves and they have to do it for them. No, like this You're is going to write on your wow. tombstone. She was a good mom, but they always put the shoes on for the kid. <laughs> mom yesterday that her daughter is able to attend like a, a healthy school environment that's really working for her. But because like her need right now is that she needs to stop at Starbucks and go pee right before she walks in. And other, because she doesn't feel safe to pee and, you know, various reasons like this Mm -hmm, is what she mm -hmm. needs. And so every day the mom buys a $5 coffee so her daughter can pee. And she'd never told anybody that they were doing this. And she told me, because I think that what we need is to like elevate these beautiful accommodations that we're making. Like, don't do it out of, and shame yourself. Mm -hmm. Come and tell somebody and be seen for doing beautiful work for your kid. Well, and that deep listening and attunement is so key because so often in these situations, the adults just jump in with a solution like, oh, they don't know how to put their shoes on. So we'll put this step-by-step guide up. And like you said, that might be the the problem, but maybe that's not. And so like really digging in, um, I always think of uh, a mentor who's now passed away, Dan Hodgins, and he talks about kids all want to be good at something, right? Like that's, they're trying to please us. They're looking for that connection. And so the kids who are bad become really good at being bad because that's what they're good at, right? Like when we just say over and over again, like whatever the message is, we don't usually say you're the bad kid. Hopefully that's not the message, but like they get that message through other things we're saying that we think is more coded, but they hear that message, then they're going to get really good at that. And I also love like your point, um, when you were still really trying to figure out what your parenting style is going to be and how you would maybe say like, if this doesn't happen, then, and in your middle son, it sounds like was the one that said, fine, then kick me out of the family. And I can like, remember feeling that way as a kid. Like I can remember like, like try and control a kid who doesn't want to be controlled. <laughs> and they'll either become a wet noodle. They'll be like, fine, kick me out. Like whatever. There's no controlling a kid who doesn't want to be controlled. Yes. And for some of our kids and my middle is one of them. The, the feeling of control and autonomy is more important to them than any other basic need. So mm. they would rather not eat. They would rather not sleep. They would rather not go to the bathroom. Like basic, they would rather not speak than be controlled. Yeah. And that is, I think that is what can be really hard for so many of our families that letting go of adult power and control is seen as permissive. It's seen as weak. It's seen as shameful. And so of course they don't want to do that. Like that's the last stronghold. It's like, but I'm supposed to be like your strong adult. You'll only feel safe if I have firm boundaries and I'm have steady and consistent with my consequences and all these things that we've been fed. And what that essentially leads us to do is to tell our child, like, you're never going to be safe with me. Mm-hmm. 
because I, I won't do the thing you most need for me to do. And for some of our kids, they will only feel safe around us if we say, okay, you are in control. You are, your autonomy matters more than anything else. So I will let you, and, and even I won't, I won't let you, like, I will even do away with the idea that it is up to me to let you, like, mm -hmm. you are the one you are your own person. And I'm not, not even, I'm not going to act in any way. Like a, you, you know, a parent is supposed to act. All I am is like a, like a, a friendly guide mm -hmm. when you want me. And otherwise, like even at two, like, I wish I could go back and say like, even at two, this child needs to be the captain of their own ship, even if it means that it changes everything about the way that we move through the world. Um, it's more important than anything else. Thank you so much, Amanda. You've given us both a lot to think about. Um, your book is out now called Low Demand Parenting. You talk in it about, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the lack of seeing yourself in other books. So if you're if this is resonating with you, follow um, Amanda at Low Demand Amanda, right? Is your Instagram handle? Is that your main online presence? Are you somewhere else? I'm on Facebook also and um, kind of playing around with TikTok. Uh, <laughs> so I'm at Low Demand Amanda on all the platforms and um, would love to connect with you there. I have a quiz on my website called Why Is Everything So Hard? And in that, I went back and, and went through the hundreds of clients that I've worked with and thought about the, the part that they were at when things were the hardest and what were they saying to themselves? What were they afraid of? What were they seeing in their kids and kind of created a, um, a pathway to identify that. And then I have a, a next step for you on the low demand journey based on where you're at. Um, mm -hmm. So that may be another way that people would want to kind of take a step forward in this journey. Awesome. Thank you. And thanks for drawing the parallels and connection to the hereditary aspect of it, because sometimes there are things that we find through our kids and then realize, oh, wait a minute, that applies to me or my partner or whoever. Um, so yeah, that's important too. Thank you, Amanda, for joining us and everybody. Thanks for listening. Um, find out more from Low Demand Parenting at Low Demand Amanda and through her book. We'll talk to you guys soon. Bye. Bye. It's time to become a member of Playvolution HQ and Explorations Early Learning. There's a free option and three paid patron-level options. All come with free stuff and ongoing automatic training and merch discounts. For as little as a dollar a month, you can become a patron. That supports our work and you get premium stuff like early access to fresh podcast episodes. Go to explorationsearlylearning.com slash membership or click the link in this episode's description to learn more. All the cool listeners are doing it. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.